The Remedial History Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the K-12 curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. Check it out on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. The Remedial History Project is funded through grants and by listeners like you. Please head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial History Project. You too can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard, and complicated. In particular, funds from patrons added from here on out will help us launch a crash course YouTube channel on women's history. We will be producing short 10-minute videos that educators can play in their classes telling women's history from era to era for both U.S. and world history. Let's make history together. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? In today's episode, we are going to be launching our first theme of season two, two. which is empresses, monarchs, and politicians. I'm here for it. All right, let's do this. Let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Empresses, monarchs, and politicians. In this episode, we are going to be asking the question, how did women rise to power in the ancient world? Brooke, theme one, are you ready for it? Yes, I'm here for, what did you say, butterflies? No. <laughs> You said monarchs. Oh, not that kind of monarch. Oh. Um, So we're starting off with this theme, empresses, monarchs, and politicians, because the history world generally talks about government, economics, war, right? Military. Okay. And that formula for history is essentially rigged to exclude women because they often weren't in those things, right? Or at least they weren't shining in those things. Right. And so, you know what? Instead of lamenting that, let's talk about the women who were there. And there's a whole thing right now about sometimes it's harder for people to get to those spots. There's so much to overcome, right? Mm-hmm. To become a female or a trans or a whatever, you know, blank. And so, awesome. Let's talk about those people yeah. that are there doing those things. And they might not have been the best at what they were doing. They might not have been the most significant, but we need to be talking about them because of how hard it was for them to get to where they are. And in the case of women, most often it was hard to do, right, to yeah. get to those positions as an empress, as a monarch, as a politician and keep those places and keep those places. But what's really interesting is that the patriarchy sometimes works to try to dismantle their power and yeah. and significance over time afterwards yeah, as like well. Yeah, downplay their downplay their significance. Yeah. It's just so such a important one and I think it's such an easy way to get women into history. Now, here's the problem with starting with this. I am all about having an inclusive women's history and when and, and by inclusive I mean women however you define that, right? Like okay. like open, you know, women of all classes, women of all races. And when we say we're talking about empresses, monarchs, and politicians, that is necessarily going to and likely going to be women of the upper class. Right. Right. It's going to be women. Had access. Um, who had privilege. access. Privilege. Right. 
through time, it's going to be a lot of white women in typical curriculum. But today, I'm going to remind people that African queens were baller. And that <laughs> if you want to teach African history, talk about African queens. They yeah. made a whole movie about it. Anyway. so There's a lot on them. They're pretty powerful so women. So amazing. This is a really easy way to get women into history, but there's that caveat of remember that these women don't represent all women. And right. in fact, they might have gotten to that top spot and done literally nothing to support the women below them. And that's a sad piece of history, but sometimes women had to work so hard to get to where they were, they couldn't, that there was nothing, they didn't have room you know, they were to reach back, to reach back and pull them up. And, and so you also have to have that empathy for the positions that they were in yep. at the same time. So I think this is a really important theme to start out uh, season two, because it is just such an easy way to do it and yep. to get them in. And, um, it, you know, we had we got some feedback from folks that were like, you can't get women's history into, you know, ancient history because there's not much known about women. And I just want to call BS on like, that. Oh, <laughs> scoff. That scoff. Is, that is so cute. Oh, you're so cute. Yeah. Hold my purse. Hold my purse. <laughs> I got things to tell you. Hold my dry erase, dry erase marker. <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by our patrons. Patrons get access to behind the scenes, regular RHP gear, bonus episodes, insights into our research, lesson plans before everybody else, and more. Brooke, read off these awesome people. Thank you to Jeff, Barbara, Christian, Kent, Jamie, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark, Nicole, Anne, Sarah, Alicia, and Katya. Woohoo! Do you know what is so awesome about this particular group of people? No, what? Very few of them are actually educators. These Ugh. are badass people who care so much about equitable and inclusive education that they are willing to put their money where their mouth is. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So cool. You too can become a patron of the Remedial Herstory Project by heading over to www.patreon.com and becoming a sponsor of the Remedial Herstory Project for just $5 That's a it? month. That's it. That's one latte. I mean, it's it's one of something, but it's cheap. And you get all that stuff? All that stuff. You too can give up one latte for thousands of children and women. You could also buy condoms for more than that. <laughs> <laughs> you, could produce, you could produce. You could reduce reproduction <laughs> for less than that. Uh. Brooke, most importantly, instead of lamenting that women's history isn't being taught in high school or that they didn't know these women, these people are putting their money where their mouth is and they are getting it into the curriculum by funding us. It's awesome. And they believe women's stories are important. Yes. Thank you. Duh. Thanks, patrons. We love you. We do love you. So today we're going to kick it off and through the themes, we're going to try to go chronologically as best as possible. So you'll notice that we kind of like start over chronologically every, you okay. know, every theme. And so to being all organized, I know. I mean, girl, get we it. are trying. So <laughs> today we're going to start with the ancient world. And so the question is, how did women rise to power in the ancient world? How did how? they do it? How, Kelsey? How did they do it? So we are going to start, Brooke, in your favorite place. Oh, England? <laughs> no. Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia. <laughs> I was like, wait, 
It's my favorite thing to say. <laughs> yeah, Mesopotamia, because that is where civilization starts. And in fact, we can trace. So for those that are like hating on women's history, you can't get them in. You can get them in in freaking Mesopotamia. Okay? I like how you made the people that say they can't get them in small little Grammys. You can't get them in You'll here. You'll come to do it. <laughs> no more. Versus like football coaches. Yo, where are we going to put this in? Where am I going to do this? <laughs> We yeah. just stereotyped a lot of people. I know. Come should, back, come back. Bring it back. Yeah. That Mesopotamia. Was I want you all to take a moment and say Mesopotamia because you'll be happy for it. <laughs> Mesopotamia. <laughs> You're welcome. So there are two things, Brooke, that you need to know and everybody needs to know about Mesopotamia. First, <laughs> it is the cradle of civilization. And second, they drink a lot of beer there. They always say that phrase, cradle of civilization. So that's yeah. where they think the Big Bang happened. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, that is break where this, this down is, for me. <laughs> this is where the, we do know from not history, but from archaeological evidence that humans originated out of Africa and oh. migrated. And so Mesopotamia, though, is where some of the first traceable through historic documents, civilization emerged. So they defined civilization as a place that had hierarchical structures, had city-states, had jobs, food. money, had jobs, had specialization. Okay. But in particular, reading and, and writing, right? Some and for those listening too, on a map, where exactly is Mesopotamia? Iraq. There you go. Yeah. So Pretty wild. Iraq, yeah. Tigris and Euphrates rivers um, came, you know, um, that's where they, you know, they would flood. And so there'd be these, these floodplains. And so they could grow grain there. Okay. And um, grain is in beer. There's an awesome book for what? those that are interested <laughs> in learning a little bit more about world history in a light, easy way. It's called The History of the World in Six Glasses. And the writer basically takes you through world history by the drink that was most prominent at the time. Oh. It's pretty cool. Can I guess at maybe two or three of these? Sure. I'm going to go with mead. No. No. Oh. That was always like an old thing. Yeah. Uh, what was the one that all the Greek gods would drink? <laughs> wine? <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, and wine. Yes. Wine. And, Are those two categories? And then wine. And then, is and, it wine? And wine again. Oh. No. Um, so the, the first one is water, right? Because they have to move where the, the clean water sources are. Then beer. Just start with water. I know. It's lame. A little lame. Um, then, you know, I, I maybe mess up the order here, but then it's wine. There's coffee in there. Oh, there's, that makes sense. Um, tea, right? Think like the British East yep. India Trading right. Company. Um, China. there's liquor for, for exploration, right? Yep. Cause it, it lasts. Rum, vodka. Yeah. Think Pirates of the Caribbean, right? Um, is that real? Yeah, yeah, actually. Oh, <laughs> um, nice job, Disney. Yeah. So anyway, it's a it's a really great book, really easy, and this all ties into the lady that I want to tell you about. Oh, she right. is the first recorded female monarch in world history, and her name is Kubaba. Mesopotamia, we got to say, and now we get to say Kubaba. Kubaba, you're welcome, everyone. All right, all together now. Kubaba. Kubaba. She was the first female monarch in recorded history. We know about her because she's on the Sumerian kings list. And it's basically this list that the people of Sumer kept of all of their kings in recorded history. I'm sorry, what's Sumer? This is like one of the major civilizations that 
existed for over 100 years in Mesopotamia, in that region. Okay, Mesopotamia is the region, and there's varying civilizations. part of it. It's it's the name of like a small subset, empire sort of thing. It's not an empire. It hasn't gotten that point, but, you know, civilization. New England. Yeah. We got you. Yeah. So she's on the Sumerian kings list. And this is really important because we know that she's a lot of times when, when women are, we think of, you know, a female ruler as a queen, but a queen is oftentimes the wife of. Right. And so to be listed as a king on the list means that she ruled outright. She was not like a consort to so-and-so. No one's wife. No one's wife. She no led, one's. She led the charge. A lot of times women rule as consorts like through their sons or whatever. And like she was actually legitimately in charge. And thus, thus she's on the so list. So is it birthright? Do we know? So I'll tell you how she got there. Just to place everybody in time. This is 2400 BCE. So this is over 5,000 years ago. Oh, my brain just hurt. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's people were around. Good to know. Yep, pretty and they wild had civilization. Yeah, and, and they named their children Kubaba. Yes, and yeah. there were women ruling five thousand years ago. Say it for the people in the back. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So um, everything that is known about her basically comes from the king's list. So that's your primary source. That's your go-to tool. Okay, so this is a list a man created. Yep. She's well, a- men created. Yeah. And she is yeah. on it. The list and the details on it often blur the line between historic fact and legend. And it's important to know that her story definitely like shifts over time and she becomes kind of like a goddess that is worshipped. And so it's because she comes like it's not sure what is fact or fiction. Well, we know because we have earlier sources and then later sources sort of change, change her story um, to be more godlike. So how did she get to power? Right. And that's that's, I think, one of the, the, the core question here. How did she do it? One of the historic sources claims that she just seized power. And that's incredibly vague, and I would love to see what that looked like. Like, did she have a sword, you know? Just one. Just her, by herself. Spear, I don't know. Walked yeah. right in. This is mine now. And Good. it's Goodbye. mine. Thank you. <laughs> Again, hard to decipher what that really means. Another source is a bit more detailed, but this is without a doubt a piece of propaganda for different things, different reasons. And so this source says, Kubaba feeds a fisherman and persuades him to offer his catch to Isagila. Murduk, which is a god's favor in response, comes as no surprise. So Marduk is this god and he says, let it be be so. And with that, he, quote, entrusted to her, the tavern keeper, sovereignty over the whole world. So basically, her entire campaign to become ruler of, quote, the entire world as Sumerians saw it, was to give a fish to some guy. Let's back up and understand Sumerian speak for a second. I know. They believe really heavily that gods give favor to different cities, right? And different people and different regions. Okay. And so when she does this kind thing to offer a fish to this guy, the god says, wonderful you, we now, I now give you all my favor. And your city will prosper forever and you will lead and yay you, you're queen of the world. Were there witnesses to this moment? <laughs> uh, no. Uh, well, at least not recorded in any historic documentation that we would use in modern day. Okay. So 
one thing that we do get out of that is that she's a tavern keeper. Okay. Does that mean the same thing it would in our language? Yes. She keeps a tavern. She's a bartender. She probably hosts people in, you know, in this space. I love that 5,000 years ago, the original job is bartender. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So a lot of people think like, oh, okay, this is clearly a rags to riches story, right? Because she, you know, was a bartender and then she becomes queen of the world, right? And by the way, world in in this sense is, is how that, they perceived yeah. their their importance. Well, the, where my mind goes is that a tavern keeper who holds a lot of power, shelter, food, all these things. So if there is only one of them in this community, it is very powerful. Yeah, and maybe she's not the only one, but scholars would absolutely agree with you. Um, they think that being a what? tavern keeper, I know, Brooke, you're crushing it. <laughs> This is basically running a massive business. And so it's more likely that she's this badass businesswoman who yeah, like turns em- into a, a political leader. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. Well, city state. Yeah. And so the king says that she ruled for, a, the king's list says that she rules for 100 years, which is obviously an exaggeration. Um, but we do know that the Sumerians considered her rule, anybody's rule, to be divine law, that there was sort of that divine right that we'll see in in later centuries. And so she would have been granted power of Sumer during her reign, during the dynasty of Kish. And this is, Kish is the city that she sort of ruled out of. And they okay. believed that the the god had given, you know, this power and this this protection for this city because of her, you know, generosity. Interesting. A fish. Yeah. She's believed to have fortified the city and made it very strong. And after her rule, kinship passed to her son and then later her grandson. So she also like sort of creates this dynasty. Do we know so, their names? Uh, I don't know their names, actually. Was it Kubaba Baba? Because <laughs> that would be fire. That would be fire. That would be wonderful. <laughs> can that happen? Can some historian write it and be like, accurate? Accurate. Thank you, Brooke. Thank you. Brooke. Once again, correct. <laughs> and then like the son of the son Kubaba Baba Baba exactly <laughs> so I've her gone, epithet gone awry. is longer than most of the kings on the list and that's pretty significant because it probably means that she was significant somebody spent time mm-hmm. writing after she died about her significance I mean who would write about a woman unless she was significant right it says the woman tavern keeper who made firm the foundations of Kish So the firm, the foundations, right? She established some sort of like consistency and stability in the region. And I think that's really cool. And it gives merit to her leadership, right? Very cool. Yeah. No no fish for you. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, pretty cool. Over time, it seems that this, the human woman that we, we believe existed, faded, and eventually she becomes associated with, you know, divine goddess stuff, which I mentioned earlier. She is deified in probably the next millennium. So it's, it's a thousand years later that she gets this sort of like goddess status. Okay. This is the um, Hittite period. The relationship between the deity and the historical person is really hard. Here's why it's complicated. So Baba is the name of a Sumerian god, and the prefix Ku means holy. So holy god, Ku Baba. Oh. So that's kind of an interesting, interesting connection there. If the goddess does not stem from the real life queen, though, her legacy clearly outlasted 
um, the fall of Sumer because she becomes a god a millennium later, right? In, okay. in this region. And even of a sort of like rival c- civilization, the Hittites. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of cool. So she is the great mother of gods and she still boasted a cult of worshipers as late as 3,000 years after her death. Whoa. So that's pretty awesome given that she started out as a tavern keeper. <laughs> I mean, we don't know the, the significance of the tavern. So, right. I mean, you can't downplay it that much. But hard. even just a regular businesswoman to be worshipped 3,000 years. I mean, like, I mean, I would like to be worshipped 3,000 years from now. Just be Oprah. Yeah. Or, or that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. I imagine 3,000 years from now, someone will treat her as a goddess. Yeah. I love talking about Kubaba because I think she's a really important example of as far back as most history classes start, you can talk about not just women, but very specific women. To go with Kubaba, I think it would be worth some people checking out an episode that we did on goddess worship Mm. last year. Um, this talks about the um, rise and fall of the goddesses, and um, I think it's a really, a really powerful episode. So if people are looking for that episode, it's episode 17 if you want to go back to our first season. Okay, awesome. So I want to transition to talking about another person in the ancient world, another woman, um, Nefertiti. She is an incredible leader, mm. um, but she sort of fits the broader theme that you're going to hear over and over and over again in the various episodes of this, of this theme, which is women that get erased after they are interesting leaders. Mm. So Kubaba, she's interesting because she's worshipped 3,000 years later. Nefertiti, she has almost the opposite impact. And so that's kind of interesting. She's considered one of the most mysterious and powerful women in ancient Egypt. Have you heard of her? Oh, yeah. No. So I had, I'll throw it out to um, a sixth grade English teacher, obsessed with Egypt. So we did a lot of Egypt literature and we did a whole unit on Nefertiti. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. What did you learn? Oh, my gosh. What can I remember? I really loved that teacher. I remember that. Uh, it's funny they that there's like a meme about that. That's oh like, really? They'll, they'll forget what you taught them, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. Oh yeah, no, she was baller, classic, and she got a lot of the boys really interested in women's um, literature, which is kind of cool. Okay, but what I remember is that she ruled outright for a long time. Um, she killed a lot of people, from yes. my understanding. <laughs> yep. And then, um, wasn't she an inventor of something, or like invested in inventions? Maybe I have that wrong. Um, yes, absolutely. Yes. Like she was very into like science. Yeah. So she reigns during a time of tremendous cultural upheaval. And for at first, she rules alongside her husband, Pharaoh Akhenaten. And this is, you know, so that's how she sort of gets her. How do they rise? She Mm -hmm. rises through marriage, right? And this is, you know, a political marriage, classic, you know, big, big families being connected. She was the daughter of Ai, who was a top advisor, and she was his great royal wife, his favored consort. And so when, when her husband ascends the throne, it's this big cultural moment in Egyptian history. They actually ascend the throne in Thebes. And then in the fifth year, they uh, dis- displace one of Egypt's chief gods, Amon, in favor of Atan. And this is kind of, you know, getting back to what we were talking about in Mesopotamia, 
you know, there's this whole like political power play with all the gods going right. on as like well. Like if you're in favor with one god. Yeah. And so they replace one god and, and try to, you know, and they, they favor another god. And this is politically, you know, Motivated, sketchy. Yeah. sketchy. Um, and so they end up having to move the capital. Um, and they change, they change their names. And her full name ends up meaning beautiful are the beauties of Aten. A beautiful woman has come. And her beauty is actually renowned. There's this bust that has been stolen from Egypt and it mm-hmm. resides in Europe. Vito. Um, classic Europe. But it is. It's a beautiful bust of her that I think if you've never heard of her before, you've definitely You know that seen, she was like one of the most beautiful Egyptian yeah, goddesses. And you might have even seen a picture of this bust. She and her husband, their their transformation of religion um, brought with it radical changes. And so this is kind of tricky because they're navigating, you know, anytime there's big change in society, there's pushback, there's resistance, there's, you know, people freaking out about things. Um, Not good at change management. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so when her husband dies, she ends up ruling outright. On the walls of some of the temples and tombs that are built during their reign, she is depicted alongside her husband with a frequency that there there is there is no comparison to right. other rulers. Very and so cool. that shows that she's pretty significant in that reign. Do um, they think that, that would make her equal to him? Absolutely. Okay. So that so co-leaders at this time. She's often even seen in places places of power and authority showing that she is she's she's the one in charge yeah and they even show her at one point like smiting an enemy in battle right so like like definitely breaking gender barriers and and that type of thing that you might think were were imposed there she gave birth to six daughters that's a lot of babies Yes, six daughters and so her husband started taking on other wives to try to get a male heir um including his sister which is really weird and with his sister, he fathered the future King Tut. And King Tut is incredibly famous because his tomb was discovered and it is elaborate and Tons kind of, of like gold and jewels just like top. buried deep for years. Yes. But he also was an interesting ruler, not just that his tomb was really cool. Yeah, well, sort of. So Nefertiti takes over when her husband dies and she is the sole ruler. Interestingly, Nefertiti is pretty much wiped from the historic record around the 12th year of Akhenaten's 17-year reign. And so some people think that maybe she died, but it's also possible that she became co-regent under a different name. And so that kind of complicates her, her story. Here's where things get really juicy. There's a relatively recent article from the National Geographic And it's titled, The Search for Queen Nefertiti Enters a New Phase. And they believe that this elaborate tomb for King Tut was actually a tomb that was built for her. And that she is actually buried in there as well. So this is really fascinating. Um, He owes his fame, King King Tut, uh, to the stunning treasures that were buried with him, right? So it's interesting because we know so much about Queen Nefertiti, but yet they don't know where she's buried. And most pharaohs of Egypt are buried in a certain region, mm-hmm. and they can't find her. And that doesn't quite make sense. So where did she go? Why? So if she she's not raised? in there, that would be surprising. Yeah. 
So because they've never found it, they think that it, they, they know that it's got to be somewhere if, you know, in this, in this area. So some people think that it's been hiding in plain sight inside a large chamber in King Tut's tomb. And in fact, people think that they built the tomb for her, not King Tut. King Tut died young. And so they think that they hadn't yet prepared the tomb for him and didn't know where to put him. So they put him with his, the queen, right? They put him with her. Because, yeah, there's no relation to them. Right. So, um, so that's kind of a fascinating thing. They and how do they not know this yet? Like they haven't opened the door. <laughs> they, yeah, they haven't. They haven't investigated all the different places. You know, there's a lot of like it likely goes here and it likely goes there. Um, but there's a larger space that they know exists there that they think could be fit for a queen. And so, um, one of the archaeologists thinks that she was interred first. And that the entrance to her chamber was later plastered and painted over. And he, there's a scene painted in Tut's chamber that depicts figures whose faces have physical features traditionally associated with portrayals of Nefertiti, right? Oh. And so it's kind of interesting that that's in, in his chamber with him, like is pictures of her. In particular, there's like a scooped brow and a nose, a straight jawline and a rounded chin. And so they think that that's her. So it's it's pretty it's pretty cool that this is like an evolving history, and it could be really fun to bring uh, your students. Doesn't it make in you on? like want to just go back in time and ask them like, so why did you paint this here? Just yeah. want to check. Um, and is she here? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's it's pretty pretty special. I think she's she's a really and correct me if I'm wrong too. They mummify people in this oh, culture. Yeah. yeah. So it's yeah. a long process. They like pull their brains out through their nose. They like get all their excrements out of their body and they wrap them. It's a whole thing. Yep, absolutely. So I think she would be a really cool way to bring women into history. We know that she sort of disappears from history and we think that it's because of all the political, you know, moving the capital and the gods and the, you know, all, mm-hmm. all of that. But how cool that she, that we have an African queen who ruled that she is shown in power yeah. um, in the ancient world, right? Um, and such an easy thing that you could bring into your, into your classroom. Awesome. So what's the question? The question is, how did women in the ancient world rise? Yeah. Oh, very cool. And I think you could use these two women as examples, right? And, and you could take that and apply it to other women that we didn't even oh, mention. Oh, gosh, yeah. yeah. Of course. I love that. Okay. Awesome. Well, I'm Brooke Sullivan. I'm Kelsey Eckert. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.